This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Pastor Matt Woodley and is part two of our Why Jesus series. So Dan Brown, the guy who wrote the novel, The Da Vinci Code, which became the movie, The Da Vinci Code, whose, which basic supposition is that Christianity is based on fabricated historical lies, etc., etc., was at one point raised in the church. And uh, he says in an interview that he started reading about cosmology, astronomy, science, the origins of the universe, and he had a lot of questions, and he went to his pastor and talked to him about this. And according to Brown, anyway, his pastor said, nice boys don't ask that question. And Brown said, and I quote, a light went off and I said, the Bible doesn't make sense. Science makes much more sense to me. And I just gravitated away from religion. I'll tell you another story. Susan Sarandon, actress, she was also raised in the church and she said she's given up on organized religion. And she said, when she was asked why, she just said, I asked what were deemed to be a lot of inappropriate questions. So she didn't get answers, so she left. Although she still says, I'm really terrified of death. She hasn't figured that out. So these stories, and I could actually share many more of them, sometimes people call them deconversion stories. People are deconverted from Christianity to something else. They follow a really familiar plot line. You can chart it out. Act number one, raised in the church. Number two, questions come up, doubts about the teaching of the church. Act number three, they try to address those questions. They're not adequately addressed. They become disillusioned. They leave the church, and now they're standing outside critiquing the church. It's a very familiar, typical plot line. You can chart it out. And sometimes this leads to agony, but most of the time it leads to a really profound sense of liberation. I'm out of that impressive, oppressive environment. So it raises a question for us today as the church. And that is, how does the church treat doubters and skeptics and questioners? Not how have we, because sometimes we failed, sometimes we've done well, sometimes we've really failed people, but how should we? What is the pattern? What's the prototype? What's the answer for how we're supposed to treat doubters and skeptics and seekers? Well, we have an answer right here. It's in our gospel reading. A little vignette of Jesus' encounter with a famous doubter named Thomas. And in this passage, we're going to see that there is good news. There's good news for doubters, and there's good news for the church, and there's also a mission and a challenge for the church. Let's look at Thomas first. Because every doubter has his or her own story, own journey. They're kind of unique in some ways, and yet similar in some ways. So what about Thomas? Well, sometimes people often call him Doubting Thomas, but I don't know if that's really fair. I like to call him maybe Honest Thomas, Struggling Thomas, maybe Hurting Thomas. Sure, he's got his doubts, but he's got his reasons for them. And let me just say parenthetically, by the way, that religious people, Christian people, are not the only people that struggle with doubts. I mean, how can you live in this world that we live in filled with such mystery and beauty and heartache and wonder and not doubt some things, not ask questions, 
about your worldview. It happens to all of us. There's an atheist named Thomas Nagel. He's a philosopher, I believe teaches at NYU, written a number of books. He's also written somewhat in defense of people of faith, or at least fairly. He's written very fairly, and at one point he said this, at the end of an article in the New York Times, he said, the result is a standoff. Whether atheists or theists are right depends upon facts about reality that neither of them can prove. In other words, you can't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt. You can't prove like 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's not that kind of proof. No matter what your worldview is, whether you're atheist, whether you're Christian, whether you're Buddhist, whatever you are, there are assumptions that involve trust, that involve faith, that involve presuppositions. So Thomas, what's, what's his story? Well, Thomas, I, I like to think of Thomas as like a character in a sprawling Russian novel. He's got a big furry hat on, he's got a big bushy beard, and he's sitting on some rustic table somewhere in a darkly lit room just outside of Siberia. He's got a bottle of vodka and a little shot of vodka, and he tells me, Sit, comrade, sit! Let's talk about the meaning of life. I mean, that's, anyway, that's how I picture Thomas, you know. He's, he's just this honest guy. He's on a search. He's on a journey. He doesn't accept easy answers. He's a little bit dark in his personality, a little, a little pessimistic. Well, before this encounter with Jesus, at least, anyway. But let's give him a little chance. Verse 25. Verse 25, it says that, all the disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. So here's ten of his friends, it's ten against one, and they're telling him, we've had this amazing religious experience. We got converted. We got saved to Jesus, through Jesus' resurrection. We got, our hearts are transformed. We, we believe now. We're believers, true believers in the resurrection. And Thomas is like, whoa, I did not have this experience. Let me tell you what I saw. I saw the guy that I put all my faith in get brutally murdered and crucified on a cross. And then I saw all the true believers, including all of you guys, all the best believers, including me, crumble. Our faith crumbled. And we defected. And we became hypocrites. We didn't practice what we preached. We became as much as sinners as everybody else. And that shattered Thomas. So now here he is. He's cynical. He's hurt. He's questioning. How is Jesus going to treat him? There's two things that I see in this passage of how Jesus treats Thomas and, and I think every doubter and seeker. Number one, he is an advocate for Thomas. He's for him. And number two, he's a challenger for Thomas. Here's the first part. He's an advocate. So in your gospel reading this morning, which is in your, your bulletins, and I'm just reading the same thing straight out of my Bible. So in the gospel reading, this is the second almost identical resurrection appearance in the gospel of John. It's almost exactly the same formula. But what's different about this one? Well, this one is different because this time Thomas is there. So really, in a way, I think this is almost Thomas's resurrection appearance. This is Jesus 
Coming, yeah, for the disciples. Coming for us, true, too. But also, especially, he's coming for Thomas, the doubter. Ten out of eleven were convinced. But that's not good enough for Jesus. He wants Thomas as well. So he comes after Thomas. And notice, in this passage, God allows the voice of Thomas to speak. The skeptic, the, the doubter, the seeker. Thomas gets to speak. He gets to be heard. And he, notice what he says. He says, unless I see in Jesus' hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. But Jesus comes for him. He comes to seek him. This is one of the things I love the most about Jesus. And one of the reasons why I'm a Christian and I'm still a Christian. I love this about Jesus. He's always doing stuff like this. He says, I'm like a shepherd that's got 99 sheep, they're safe. I'm going for the one. I'm going to seek him out. He's like, I'm like a father who's got his oldest good son, best son, still at home, safe in my house. But my young son, my prodigal, my rebel, he's gone. And my heart aches for him to come back. Jesus said, I'm like a doctor. I came not for healthy people, but for sick people. That's what doctors do. Uh, my antenna are up and alert. I'm looking for sick people. I'm coming for them. Jesus is always doing this. I love this about him. In one um, poem written by a guy named Francis Thompson, Jesus is called the Hound of Heaven. In the Hound of Heaven, it's a long poem about a man who is running from the presence of God, doing everything he can to get away from God. And yet, Jesus is pursuing him, calling out to him through all the twisted, convoluted journey of his life. And Jesus is pictured as like a hound of heaven who's on a scent, tracking him. I love that poem because there's this amazing story about the hound of heaven that actually took place, true story, took place in 1917. There was a bar in New York City in a bar known as the Hell Hole. And on this blustery winter night in 1917, there was a bunch of artists, and playwrights, and journalists who were smoking and drinking. So you have to imagine this room thick with cigarette smoke, the smell of booze. And in that crowd, there were two people in particular. One was Dorothy Day, who at that time was a left-wing journalist. And there was another guy named Eugene O'Neill, who was a famous playwright. And out of the blue, Eugene O'Neill, who was known for not having any kind of religious faith, started quoting the words of the Hound of Heaven, the poem, from memory. And everyone was stunned. Like, where did that come from? Especially Dorothy Day. Well, Dorothy Day and O'Neill parted ways, and they didn't see each other for a decade. O'Neill kept writing plays. He wrote about tragedy. He wrote about sad plays. He wrote about an absent God. He was brilliant. He won four Pulitzer Prizes and a Nobel Prize for Literature, but he never found peace. Dorothy Day 
Between 1917 and 1927, married twice, had two abortions, and then had a daughter from a man she never married. And then in 1927, she shocked all of her sophisticated, literary, left-wing friends by becoming a Christian, joining the church, and being baptized. She never got over that poem. In her autobiography, she said this, It is one of those poems that awakens the soul and recalls it to the fact that God is its destiny. Eugene O'Neill, meanwhile, catch up to him in 1953. He's on his deathbed in Boston. He's dying, and one of the people around him keeping vigil is Dorothy Day, the believer now, the follower of Jesus. Dorothy Day was with him. She summoned a priest to his side to pray for him. We don't know what happened with Eugene O'Neill. We don't know what happened in his heart and his mind in those final moments, but Dorothy Day assuredly was hoping and praying that he would, as the poem says at one point where Jesus says, rise, clasp my hand, and come. We don't know if he actually came or not, but I love that story because Jesus is for the doubter, the seeker, the rebel. So I picture Jesus, if Thomas is this guy in the Russian novel, you know, I picture Jesus coming to him, hugging him and kissing him on both cheeks and said, Thomas, it's time to come home. Stop drinking your vodka and come home. Jesus is for the doubter. There's something else Jesus does in this passage, though. And it's not contradictory. It just is the complete picture. He challenges Thomas the doubter. He confronts him. He puts a fork in the road and says, are you going to believe me or not? Are you going to follow me or not? Let me, let me put it this way. I think there's actually two kinds of doubt, just in my own experience and experience people I've known over the last 25 years. There's a type of doubt that I would just call normal doubt. It's just questions about life. It's just questions that we ask. It's questions about being a human being. The Bible is remarkably kind and gentle to normal doubt. At one point, this anguished father says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. I love that. One of the best prayers in the Bible, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus allows him to utter it. That's normal doubt. But then there's another kind of doubt I'll call toxic doubt dangerous doubt. It's toxic. It's poison to your spiritual life. Toxic doubt is more like unbelief. It's more like a settling in. So normal doubt is about motivation. Toxic doubt is about petrification. Normal doubt is about motivation because you're on a journey and you want to get home, but you have some struggles and questions along the way. Toxic doubt is about petrification. Your heart petrifies and it hardens and you don't want to get home anymore because you don't believe there's a home or you don't believe there's a savior that can bring you home. That's petrification. They're very different. Thomas is very close 
to petrification. And I see that in this text, especially in one word that he uses. Let me read the whole verse for you, verse 25, because he he gives his credo. Here's his statement of faith. He says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Did you get that little word? Never. Toxic doubt is about never. I just say this, be very careful with what you say never to. When I was about 15, 16 years old in high school, it was 1975, we were coming out of the 60s, out of the days of the hippies, and out of the hippies there came this movement called the Jesus People Movement, and those Jesus people, people that were, you know, strung out on drugs and free love and all that kind of stuff, and they came to Jesus, had these radical conversions, we called them Jesus freaks. And we had some of those in our high school. And I said to my friends, I remember distinctly meeting with my friends, Allison and Moraine, and we looked at those Jesus freaks, and, we, and I said, I will never be a Jesus freak. A year later, I was a Jesus freak. As hard as I tried not to. At one point in my life, after going through a very dark time, I said to myself, I will never experience the presence of Jesus in a powerful, palpable, personal way. It's not that I've lost my faith. I'll keep coming to church, but I'm just going to go through the motions and I will never experience the power of the Holy Spirit. I was like our liturgical year that we have as Anglicans. I was like stuck in Advent, this time of waiting and longing and aching, but never could get to Pentecost, the power of the Holy Spirit, the resurrection of Jesus. At one point I said, I will never fall in love with the church again. And here I am, loving the church. Be very careful what you say never to. It can start to petrify your heart. And Jesus pushes back, as we would say. He challenges Thomas's never. He also challenges Thomas has kind of set the conditions. He said, I will decide how I'm going to believe, when I'm going to believe, if I'm going to believe. He sets all the conditions and parameters. Jesus challenges that. And notice in verse 27, he tells Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, based on the scripture, Thomas never takes Jesus up on that offer. He doesn't need to. He's got enough. The point is that Jesus challenges that unbelief, that petrification, by saying, do not disbelieve, but believe. He puts a fork in the road. Up to this point, Thomas has been the challenger. He's been the questioner. He's looking at God like it's a a specimen, looking at the church, these 10 disciples, as some kind of sociological experiment, some kind of thing that you put under a microscope. He's got a buffer between himself and the living Christ. And Jesus pushes that buffer down and asks him to confront him personally. So Jesus confronts the confronter, challenges the challenger, critiques the critiquer, and pushes back. And notice Thomas's response. He says, in verse 28, my Lord and my God. 
Notice those two personal pronouns. So now his creed is, you are my Lord. You are my God. Not just my parents, not just my friends, not just some people who believe, but you are my Lord. You are my God. And that is the moment when faith comes alive for Thomas. There's a scientist named um, Dr. Francis Collins who worked on the Human Genome Project and became uh, director of the National Institutes of Health. Brilliant scientist. At one point, he was taking care of a patient. He was also an MD, medical doctor. He was taking care of a patient. And the patient was telling Dr. Collins about her faith. And Dr. Collins was, well, that's interesting. But Dr. Collins was an atheist, agnostic. And, and the woman said, this older Christian woman said, Dr. Collins, what do you believe? And what's your faith? And he was a little stunned because he thought, I don't know what I believe. I've never really thought about it. So he began to think about it. He started on a quest. He started on a journey. He was awakened. He became a seeker. He started reading. He started reading about philosophy and theology. He started reading about Christianity, other religions. He started reading about some alleged conflict between Christianity and science. And then Dr. Collins, at one point, he said, well, okay, I can believe there's a God, but not a personal God, not Jesus, not that. And then he said this in his book. He said this, and I quote, I came to the point where I had to make a choice. A full year had passed since I decided to believe in some sort of God, and now I was being called to account. On a beautiful fall day, as I was hiking in the Cascade Mountains during my first trip west of the Mississippi, the majesty and the beauty of God's creation overwhelmed my resistance. As I rounded a corner and saw a beautiful and unexpected frozen waterfall hundreds of feet high, I knew the search was over. The next morning, I knelt in the dewy, the dewy grass as the sun rose and surrendered to Jesus Christ. Now, let me be clear. Francis Collins did not stop being a scientist. He did not stop believing in the scientific method. He did not stop doing top-notch scientific research. But I wish Dan Brown would have had somebody like Francis Collins around to talk to when Dan Brown was going through those struggles. Because Francis Collins would tell you, there is no irreparable conflict between science and Christianity. That just doesn't exist. That's just bogus. You can have both. You can have science and faith in Jesus. But also the thing I love about his testimony is that he had to come to the point where he did this mental journey, this intellectual journey. He really wrestled with it. But in the end, it came to a point of surrender. He had to surrender his life to Jesus Christ. And one of the things I love about being on staff at Church of the Resurrection is getting to hear stories about people who have been on spiritual journeys where they've come to the point of having to surrender. So I asked Claire Vanderweel, who was uh, in our Alpha course about three years ago, to come and share her story then and a little bit since then. The first time I came to Jesus was not in a way that led me directly to Christianity. Instead, it was this vague but important realization that Jesus might have possibly existed as a real historical figure. Uh, previous to that, my only understanding of Jesus was that he was a story, made of smallest stories like being born in a stable, walking on water, turning water into wine, and dying on a cross. Um, but that's all they were to me, just stories. 
I grew up in England where religion simply wasn't talked about at that time. I can count on one hand how many times I went to church with my family and there was no Bible in our home. <coughs> Christianity simply had no re re relevance for me. Uh, it seemed like a nice way to live your life, but it just wasn't for me. I equated God with consciousness and I left it at that. That's not to say I wasn't curious. I was curious enough about life to get a degree in philosophy, which taught me that the world could be understood from a purely logical perspective. By the time my curiosity about life led me to Jesus, I was 26 and suffocated by grief. Uh, I was in despair, depression, and anxiety. It was totally crippling, and at rock bottom, I slowly realized that the version of God I only half believed in wasn't enough. There had to be something I was missing. About four months after that rock bottom realization, I found myself here at Res, sitting right over there. I wasn't sure what I was doing, uh, but I felt compelled to stay by this tiny seed of faith, growing despite the weeds of doubt. I read book after book about every world religion. I read Christian apologists and theologians and writers. I found myself an alpha, and I inundated Matt Woodley uh, with hundreds of questions. I began to understand that I would never have all the answers or fully comprehend the truth that is God. I realized that instead of merely knowing, I might also have to trust. But the one thing I couldn't wrap my head around was Christ's resurrection. I had come to an understanding that Jesus was this historical figure. I knew he was someone who had walked the earth, taught incredible lessons, and had died. But rising from the dead, it was so hard for me to believe. If the resurrection of Jesus was not true, then Christianity was a lie. But if it was true, then everything I knew about the world, the logical, empirical truths I had gathered throughout my life, was merely a fraction of the truth. If it was true, it would change everything in my life, and that terrified me. I was drawn to the message that those who seek God shall find him, but I had so much fear that it was just all in my head. I was plagued by the question, what if I'm wrong? So much so that I couldn't even entertain the question, what if I'm right? <clears throat> there was also part of me that not, not only wondered if it was true, but why it was true. I saw it as a trust fall, where I knew someone was behind me to catch me, but I didn't know why. And I questioned their motivation and my worthiness to be caught. I can't pinpoint the moment that these doubts fell away, but I do remember one particular night. I was laying in bed and suddenly a peace came over me. I knew that in that instant that I wasn't ever going to have all the answers, but instead that to know God, to know Jesus, it came down to love, it came down to faith. The only way I can describe it is that it felt like an embrace from Jesus himself in that moment. I thought about the world, saw its suffering and inequality and malice, and fully knew that Christ died to save us all from that. His grace overwhelmed me. Matt later pointed out to me a particular verse that, had stayed, that has stayed with me since, uh, from Ephesians 3.19, where Paul prays that we might grasp how deep Christ's love is, and to know that the love of Christ surpasses all knowledge. I was still overflowing with questions, things like free will, heaven, the Holy Trinity, how to interpret the Bible, and the frustrating reality that there are so many people who say they are Christians but don't act in Christian ways. I still struggled with profound grief and anxiety. But in the years since then, I've found more answers, more faith, and more healing and joy 
than I ever could have imagined. I knocked and the door was opened, not just to the historical figure of Jesus, but to God himself. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.